Cowabunga dudes! Uh, hey there, it's Kevin Eastman, co-creator of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and you are listening to Grail Hunters Australia podcast with my friends Neville, Ben, and Michael. It's awesome. It's gonna be the best show ever! Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Grail Hunters Australia Podcast. With COVID behind us, we're going to be shaking things up a bit. We're going to have more episodes more often. Long in-depth episodes featuring international and local guests talking about comics, collectibles and everything else. But then also short and punchy episodes where we're going to be doing features, reviews and just shooting the breeze with Ben and myself. So as always, crack a beer, put your feet up and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Grail Hunters Australia podcast. In a few short weeks, I will be traveling to San Diego Comic Con where I'll be hosting a panel to celebrate the 40th anniversary of some of Australia's best comics and the creators behind them. In my preparation for the panel, many of the great creators behind the likes of teams like Southern Cross, characters like Dark Nebula, Jackaroo, Flash Domingo, Plastique, Nightshade and The Rock all took time out of their schedules to chat with me about the story behind the stories. I recorded these sessions and found them too valuable to keep to myself. So with the consent of the creators, I will be releasing them over a number of short episodes so collectors and readers passionate about the books and the stories can enjoy them as much as I did. As mentioned earlier, this year marks the 40th anniversary of some of Australia's most significant creator-owned publications, comics and characters. And now, 40 years later, we're experiencing quite the renaissance. All our favorite teams and characters are making a comeback, and the doors of the Australian comic universe built in the 1980s will be swung wide open and shared with a new generation of Revere superheroes. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dave DeFries. Dave is a film writer, director, and producer, and also writes and illustrates comic books. He started his career early in the 1980s with work on Oz Comics, Fantastic, Mad Magazine, and uh, 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 Penthouse. Uh, definitely something I need to check out in a later episode. He teamed up with Gary, Glenn and Tad to establish Cyclone Comics in 1985 and they did so to ensure that their characters could be published while remaining under their control. Dave entered into the American market through First Comics and Malibu Graphics where he first published Southern Squadron, a superior team that at that stage had taken over the Cyclone title. At that point in time, Dave also worked on titles like The Phantom from Marvel, he worked on Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, Star Trek for DC Comics, Valiant Comics and other projects like The Puppet Master and Planet of the Apes. Dave worked on a number of projects including the writing of The Thing from Another World, Black Lightning and Green Lantern Annual for DC and he was also pivotal in recreating the origin of Captain Boomerang with John Ostender in an issue of Suicide Squad. Well that's enough from me, let's jump straight into the episode. Thanks for jumping in the call, Dave. Um, I appreciate you don't have a lot of time. So I'm just going to jump straight into the questions. Uh, what was the first Australian books or characters that you worked on? And when was Believe it or not, uh, sorry, um, believe it or not, it was the Southern Squadron. Um, okay. They were created for Oz Comics. Uh, that was the first comic book I ever worked on. Uh, it was, um, in fact, the very first panels that I ever drew for the Southern Squadron were the ones that ultimately got printed in the magazine. Uh, I was just going to ask, did it did it evolve over time? Was it the same concept that you started with what you ended on? or, or Well, did, did it, it sort of did. Um, it sort of evolved. I, I started off with uh, wanting to create a superhero character. Um, and so because I was a fan of Batman and the Hulk was on TV, I thought I'd combine those two characters. And so this, the Night Fighter is sort of a combination of Batman and the Hulk. He was sort of a, a Dark Knight detective type character, but then when he got angry, he became super powered. And then I had to create a, a reason for why that would occur. So um, I gave him a drug that he was immune to, um, that anybody else who was given it would, you know, go crazy. Yeah. Uh, so that that would then guarantee a bit like you know uh the super soldier i guess serum with captain america the idea that he and he alone could have it so that you couldn't end up with yeah. multiple characters but allowing for the fact that others could go crazy would then mean that you could have evil versions of them yeah. um so sort of taking the model of of uh of um batman i thought well batman has robin so i thought i'll create another character that can fight alongside him and then i thought I didn't like the fact that Robin was kind of subordinate in every respect to Batman because in a way it was a bit of a pointless character. So I thought it'd be more interesting if Robin was a female and was the boss 
And without realizing it, I just created the first combat female superhero team leader in oh, history, yeah. which was yeah. quite interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so I like the idea of uh, giving that character. I didn't want to go with a captain something, so I went with lieutenant. Yeah. Um, and I didn't want to go with action or uh, yeah. like Captain Action, which was a toy I used to play with as a as a kid, or <laughs> yeah. America. Yeah. Or, I so I, I, so I, I, because I'd just been in the Army Reserves. Uh, interestingly, my platoon commander at Pakapanyo was a Lieutenant Smith, but that wasn't the motive for that name. The, the name came from the fact that I just wanted a really sort of bog standard, bland name, and so it was yeah. either Smith or Jones or Brown. So uh, I. Smith just seemed like the most common name I could come up with. So Lieutenant Smith and the Night Fighter was the original intention that was going to be the, the, the series. Um, I went up to see Frank McConaughey uh, at Oz Comics uh, in Sydney. Um, I'd been going backwards and forwards between Melbourne and Sydney because I had a girlfriend up there um, that I sort of wanted to catch up with. And um, I showed him the ideas for it. And before I... I sort of got there. I'd already come up with the ideas of it might be fun to, oh, that's right. I was reading Alpha Flight and I really liked the the, the costume of, he's now called The Guardian, but back then he was called The Vindicator. And I liked the idea of the flag symbol wrapped around yeah, his chest. wrapped around but, him, yeah. But, but in a way that it didn't look obviously like a flag, you know, it just looked like a really sort of cool design. So I thought yeah, if, if I was to do that for an Australian flag, I'd probably do something with the Southern Cross. And so I... The Southern Cross started off as an idea for a, a, um, a costume. And then I thought, well, if I'm going to do that, why not make him a character? And so I gave him this sort of halo so that when you saw him in the sky flying with his arms out, he'd look like a cross. And then yeah, yeah. I was, he was a character that sort of grew out of visuals. And then, um, and then I thought, well, he needs something to, a reason to fly. So I thought about the psychokinetic powers. And then I thought... I like the idea that if Thor dropped his hammer, he would no longer be powerful. Um, so I gave him a power cane. So a lot of it was sort of thinking about what sort of physical devices had been used with other characters. And so I guess the Southern Cross had a sort of an element of Thor about him. And then, and then, um, funny enough, I, I just read the Dark Nebula. I like the idea of this character that where his superpowers came from his mind. Yeah. So uh, with the Southern Cross, I said, okay, well, let's make it that the, he has these mind powers. He's a telekinetic, but with augmentation, and this is where we started to, again, without realising cyberpunk was a thing, I just kind of had this sort of cyberpunk element to the Southern Cross. And um, then I thought, okay, well, I now have a, a character that's, I've got three characters that doesn't have a very nice symmetry, so I, I need a fourth. And then I thought, well, they're all kind of white. And I, I decided the Southern Cross would be sort of um, more feminine if, if, if the Night Fighter was a hyper-masculine character, a strong Ocker based in Melbourne, I needed to have a rival. So I, I thought the Southern Cross could be from Sydney and make him effeminate and yeah, so yeah, yeah. test all and of the various... each other as well, yeah. Yeah. Um, and there was every particular intention to make him gay, but it was more... And and some people have said, is he gay? And I've, I've never really sort of wanted to define the character as such because I think masculinity is a little more nuanced than if you're effeminate. Mm. By definition, you must be gay, you know? So yeah, I, I tried yeah. to avoid that. Um, although I know a lot of people sort of want to pigeonhole him in that. It just seems like a very sort of um, lazy way to do things. But I did want a, a fourth character. And so I thought... started. My, and one of my other favourite character, uh, character teams was um, the uh, Fantastic Four. So I thought, well, I've got a flying character, I've got a strong person, I've got a female, I need a monster. And, and so that's when I thought, okay, well, then um, uh, that, that's where I'll um, uh, go with um, the dingo. And the idea of that was I wanted to sort of have some sort of animal character. I'd always liked the werewolf by night character in the Marvel yeah, yeah. comics. Uh, and yeah. and the, then the, the visuals thought, around the dingoes, I won't say it's evolved over the years, but it, it he has changed a little bit. Oh, very much, yeah. There are times yeah. he was cute and funny. Other times he was yeah. sort of more monstrous. And and, yeah. uh, and I'm actually dealing with that in, a, I know that you wanted to talk about what's next for the characters type thing. Mm -hmm. That's something that's actually going to happen over time. The dingo is going to start to lose control of his powers, and um, the history of him, I sort of has evolved over time. But in essence, 
um, he taps into, I guess, the junk DNA that's inactive in people. And so he can sort of, over time, I'm going to have the character so that he can become a full-blown wolf or he can be like a wolf man and he can mm-hmm. become in every combination, even to the point where he can just turn his arm into a wolf's claw, you know, if he wants. Yeah. Um, and that he can sort of adopt certain um, powers and abilities of his wolf side, but while still being in human form so that, you know, he can mix and match it. So, and and that sort of came out of necessity because I could never get other artists to draw the damn character the same way. So rather than fight it, I just said, okay, I'm not going to standardise it. I'm going to actually allow that people can interpret the character whichever way they want. Yeah, and then yeah. as the writer, I'll just adjust the stories to that. Okay. Um and the immigrant thing was uh, just that, yeah, um, growing up in Melbourne, it was a fairly Anglo-Celtic society, but there were a lot of Greeks, Yugoslavs and Italians uh, who immigrated after World War II. And I, when I went to Hawthorne West Primary, um, there was a huge uh, component of, of immigrants. And I'd come over from New Zealand, so I guess um, I kind of aligned a little bit with them in terms of recognising that I was sort of like a little bit of a fish out of water. Um, so I like the idea of a, a character that sort of had that uh, and the idea of a sort of like a, almost like a playful puppy dog as, a, as, a, as a, a wolf, but then when he becomes human, he becomes more like the mentor of the team. So I made him older and wiser and, you know, almost like the, the rat in the Ninja Turtles, that sort of idea. So, yeah, so the, so when I saw Frank McConaughey, um, he, uh, this all appeared, this was just all his notes, uh, but I had actually hadn't drawn a damn thing. And the, the idea of a story was sort of the least of my ideas. It was really just going up and saying, this is my basic idea for a team. Would you be interested in seeing me create some stories around these, these characters? Don't know what I would have done if he'd said no. Um, uh, and he... Um, but I was the original pitch was Lieutenant Smith and the Night Fighter, and he was look, looking through the notes. And he said, "So who are these other characters, and what's the Southern Squadron?" And I said, "Oh, that will come later. That's you know if the characters then evolve into it." And he yeah, said, yeah, "No, yeah, no, yeah, let's yeah. just start with those." So that was really cool because I sort of jumped into the storyline, kind of maybe two or three years into the, yeah. the team's Where sort it's of already established, yeah, and that gave the characters an instant backstory. Which uh, and I found and I look I knew nothing about writing but I've 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 since I've since learned that um, one of the the signs of really good writing is the depth of backstory and relationships of characters and a lot of plays actually are based on this idea of um, characters with sort of history and trauma and that is revealed as things occur in the storyline you realise they have these pasts and these traumas and these backgrounds which sort of are revealed. Um, and that it's funny because it makes it relatable, right? Through the readers, yeah. And and I often find that, like, when people read the the, the Bible notes, which are reasonably extensive, um, artists who say I'd like to do something, and I sort of say, "Well, have a read through this, and we'll we'll f- find the aspect of the characters that you like, and let's do something with it." Instinctively, they want to tell the origin stories of the characters. I go, "No, that stuff is never gonna. That's we're keeping that secret. That gets." doled out with an eyedropper that's yeah that's like you don't make a, a meal out of the spice rack you know you, you use it sparingly yeah, yeah but but the knowledge that it's there makes makes for the you know that that's what the restaurant is based around is the spice rack but you don't yeah. put that on the plate you have yeah, to keep yeah. going back to it over and over before you fully understand yeah it's good enough you know, that language yeah yeah so long answer to a short question yeah so no that's so fine the, that's fine so the first story I wrote for Oz Comics sort of had all of this going into it. And I, I, I went back and reread it. And to be honest, the art was really crap. Um, some of the the, the the layouts were reasonably cinematic, which was good, but I was trying to put too many panels on the page. Um, the other thing was that um, the pencils was solid, but the inking was really rubbish. I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I'd, I'd literally, and that was only when I met guys like Gary and, and Glenn and Tad and that that I sort of they introduced me to the way to do it properly. And, yeah, yeah. And that's a good segue time. too, because my next question is really going to be like, how did how did that lead you to meeting the rest of the crew that became Cyclone and Oz Comics? And um, what was it just? 
ketchups was it very organic or or was there intent behind hey let's have a let's arrange something between us to to meet and share ideas uh it it evolved with um again frank mcconaughey frank mcconaughey and, and oz comics um I'd, I'd at this point moved up to sydney to study uh teaching at the sydney teachers college uh, which was the sydney college of advanced education as it was then known um i did a year of that and then uh, I sort of started to be interested in getting back into comics. I'd, I'd worked on some cartoons and other stuff in the meantime. Uh, and Frank was um, talking about getting a team together to come out with um, a new magazine, which was going to be similar to Oz Comics. But where Oz Comics was an anthology where it didn't have necessarily a regular team of contributors, he wanted to gather a sort of a tight-knit group Um and that's where I met Bodine. He was part of that group and also Steve Carter. So we started working on a, a book which was um, going to be called Sunburnt. And it was this idea of, um, and that was because that, that felt like a sort of an Australian uh, idea of sunburn, but also the idea of um, having a slightly darker edge to it. And, and then the other thing that we wanted to do was give each story each book like a theme so for example then the, fir the first one was going to be called on the road so there's so there's a lieutenant smith and the night fighter um on the road story which is where they're actually uh believe it or not they're at a drive-in and and um on a date and uh, somebody ho holds up the drive-in i don't know why you do that but uh so the <laughs> night fighter then puts on his it wasn't a cashless society back then <laughs> no it was, a, it was sort of a silly story um but uh, Des and Steve also did uh, stories based around cars. And those actually were the, their first two stories that appeared in the Fantastique magazine. Mm. Um, I'm not sure if Bo was actually part of that really, really early stage. But um, what happened was Gary Challoner came along and met with myself, Des, Steve, and a few others. Uh, and he liked what we were doing. Um, he saw the the Night Fighter and Lieutenant Smith car story, which had been inked properly and looked more like a comic. Uh, and he said, I, I, he also said, let's get you to do the Southern Squadron rather than just the Lieutenant Smith and the Night yeah, Fighter yeah, stuff. Yeah. Um, so he had Tad and Glenn working with him. Uh, Glenn and Tad were doing Dark Nebula and also together they were doing the original Southern Cross. And Gary had um, the flash in the jackaroo but he was also building a series of other superheroes um but he kind of liked the idea of having the southern squadron in there so he said well i'll put the southern squadron in the first book and then and then there was going to be i think the book would come out i think the original intention was monthly they always are and they never yeah, quite yeah. get there but i think steve was going to do a story for the second book and then des would do one for the third and they would rotate so we would be the fourth title, but rotate the three of us. Mm. And then as this was occurring, um, Frank landed um, a grant from the state government of New South Wales, which then financed Fantastique. So Steve, Frank and Des all decided they would form this team and become part of Fantastique and, and build it. And Steve said, I'll only do it if it can be like a... a, a uh, no holds barred horror comic so my characters i created some characters for that brutal and frank which were based on steve and frank mcconaughey brutal was steve and they were two barbarians um which they were either from the distant past or the future but they were set in australia with australian megafauna and um uh, they were really sexist really violent really un-pc um yeah. stuff it was, it was crazy stuff so i continued doing that with them um and because of that, uh, Steve and Des uh, didn't have time to work on Cyclone. So Gary said that he would like the Southern Squadron to then continue as the fourth title in Cyclone. And because Gary didn't have time to sort of work on this other sort of plethora of superhero characters um, that were going to be like almost like an Avengers, he thought, well, he started to incorporate elements of the Southern Squadron into his storylines. And then I started to weave my his characters into mine uh and so the jackaroo southern squadron stories sort of became the basis of the cyclone universe yeah. um and so by the time we got to issue nine um they the southern squadron was so 
central to the 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 um, uh, the comic that they just took over the title. Gary said, well, "Why don't you just write the book and I'll draw it, and you can do yeah. a backup." And so, with number nine, Southern Squadron took over Cyclone. So there is no Southern Squadron book number one because it was like amazing. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's kind of yeah. moved. Yeah, it evolved. Right? Yeah, we just flipped the title. Um, yeah. So, and while that was going on, meanwhile, I was continuing to work uh, on Fantastique uh, with Steve and Des and uh, Frank. And because Des was sort of almost like a vampire, he never came out, uh, you know, until it was dark. And he wasn't really into the the wheeling and dealing and mixing with um, uh, the media and that. Uh, I sort of became almost like the unofficial fourth member. And so uh, often in news interviews, Steve and Des would take me along as well. If we had to meet the minister's office, I'd go along. And so mm. I sort of was part of the, the team um, without actually being officially one of, yeah, one yeah, of them. Of yeah. um, but that's why I was sort of fairly central to the, the fantastic yeah. world as well. Yeah. And as a result of that, um, that's when I met Bodine um, and mm. uh we sort of ended up becoming friends as a result of that. And the Yugle Club was, original Yugle Club was created out of, uh, actually by Frank McConaughey again. Uh, he had such an influence over the early history of this period. Um, he got the Cyclone guys, the Fantastic guys, and anyone else who was based in Sydney to all meet up. And we met up at the Yugoslavian Soccer Club, which is hmm. where the name came from. And yeah, so yeah. It, yeah, just oh, that's right. Me. Okay, makes sense. <laughs> Oh, that's great, man. Um, so over the years, though, like after after the blend into um, Southern Squadron and Cyclone, um, you also worked on loads of other titles, right? You contributed mm-hmm. to the early '90s and also um, some exposure in the American titles of Marvel and DC and Dark Horse and so forth. Uh, what what stands out for you then? Did you take a lot of what you've learned via Cyclone into into the work you did after that? Yeah, it was um, it was interesting. The the first thing was I, I met up with a guy called Jim Hudnell, who's unfortunately not with us anymore. Um, and f- probably the, the th- well, first off, one of the, the standouts was um, that uh, I w- I've been really lucky to meet a lot of, I guess they're my heroes, people who I really admired. Uh, the first of which was Mike Grell, uh, and he he was down in Australia. He was actually there with Gary and I when Cyclone Number no. Nine Southern Squadron uh, yeah, yeah. was first launched, um, and we, at his advice, went back to America with or went to America with him, uh, and he introduced us to so many people like John Estrander and so on at at um, San Diego, uh, and Jim Hudnall was somebody that we met at that time. Jim, in turn, introduced us to people like Garth Innes. So over the years, I've, I've sort of met with many of the people who were either people I admired or people who, as their careers went along, I found myself sort of admiring them as well. Um, other people like Neil Gaiman, for example, who you know we met in Australia and became friends with as well. Uh, so I've been very lucky in that uh, during my career, I've always been able to meet up with a lot of the sort of superstars, if you like, of the industry. Uh, Todd McFarlane was a very good friend. I used to go out to Vancouver Island and stay with him, you know, for a few days at a time. And, um, you know, he was very influential on Glenn and myself in terms of um, shaping our understanding of what sells and, you know, what the kids want and how to balance the needs of the artist with the needs of the writer. Yeah. Todd was yeah. never really somebody who thought of the story as core. He always thought that he knew it was important. But as far as he was concerned, you know, a book would sell if a kid went to the, the they'd, they'd see the, the cover and go, oh, man, that looks awesome. And they'd pick it up and they'd, if they turn two pages and go, oh, cool, turn two more pages, oh, cool. They said if they do that three times, they'll buy the book. Yeah. Um, and, and as far as he was concerned, that was what mattered more than anything else. If, if you could get them to do that, the story would bring them back for the second and the third maybe. But if they didn't pick it up in the first place, if they didn't buy it in the first place, what point yeah. was there? Yeah. So we always sort of felt that that was super important, that uh, it was both the stake and the sizzle that you needed both, you know, that the, yeah. the, the visual had to get you to buy the book, um, but the story was vital if you wanted to get people to bring it back. And Jim Hudnell, uh, what he taught me was he read the first handful of Southern Squadrons and said, you have a tendency to use 
the technique that Stan Lee used. And I said, yeah, I did that on purpose, which is like, because the Southern Squadron always sold better as it, like, like normally when you, you, you release a book, book number one does really good. And then over time, the sales slowly diminish. Cyclone was going the opposite. It started small and it built up and it grew through word of mouth. And every time we published a new copy, we were selling sometimes up to a third to twice as many as we did the, the issue before. So I was always consciously aware that I had to cater for both the, the, the established audience and also the new readers. So we did what Stan Lee would do. We would you know, take time out from the story to say, okay, you know, so you literally put in a caption, okay, for those of you who came in late, you know, yeah, yeah, this is this, recap, and this, yeah, yeah, okay, now read on. And so, yeah, without, was, yeah, without dubbing it down, you just give that recap, yeah. So, there was a breaking of the fourth wall uh, effort there, and so it was um, more like a television style of writing rather than a cinematic style of writing. Uh, and James said that the trouble with that technique is that um, it's dated by American standards. This is the period, of course, of Dark Knight Returns where things were getting yeah, really yeah. cinematic. Yeah. And he said, if you want to have a career in America that is, you know, you know, like you need to embrace the American approach. So I actually adopted uh, the approach that I think for the first three years, four years of writing in America, I... I set myself the discipline of never having a single caption. Um, mm. I could never speak as a narrator and even just a time and place caption, I would yeah. not have. What I've I would do. I've heard the same about would, thought bubbles, right? I've heard the same about people. Oh, yeah. I've never, I've never thought used thought bubbles, bubbles yeah. during that period at all um, because that was just deemed to be, um, uh, you know, like breaking that, that fourth wall. Yeah. So what I did there was, um, so I, I was, I would allow my, like a, the word, if like it was set in Berlin, I'd allow the word Berlin, but it couldn't even be in a caption box. It would have to be like an overlay. And yeah, usually yeah. if I wanted to integrate, you know, so if I said, oh, well, it looks like we, you know, if I want to go to Paris, I would have them at the bottom of the previous page saying, okay, it looks like the next step is dot, dot, dot. And then we cut to, Paris, yeah. and then I would allow a caption box if it was a continuation with in quotations, which was the equivalent of a voiceover, because to my mind that was still a cinematic where yeah. you have what yeah. they call the J cut or the L cut in editing, where you allow yeah, yeah. the voice to continue over the, the 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 beginning of the next shot. Yeah. So that was probably one of the things that I found um, shaped my writing and my storytelling more than anything else was just imp imposing that discipline onto my writing. And then after three years, I started to loosen back and say, okay, now I'm going to allow a more relaxed approach. But when I got into uh, re revisiting doing the Southern Squadron, which I know you're interested in talking about what's coming up, um, I actually then went back to the earlier version um, but funnily enough, I find that I still don't use anything near the same level of narration as I used to when I started out. Yeah. Because it still feels like it's a little bit of a cheat and a little bit lazy. Yeah. So if I put it in now, it's really more for um, to add personality and to add a, a, a readership relationship between the author and, 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 and the audience. Yeah. All right. Um, so my next question is really about after... after late 80s, early 90s, Cyclone and many of the characters and stories went into a bit of an, let's call it an hiatus, right? Mm -hmm. um, and it feels like over the past few years with the help of social networking and platforms like Facebook, et cetera, um, without even having created new content for quite a while, people started picking back up on it and started going back to it and um, you know, even just organically posting photos of books they find in the wild Mm. interest for readers who might not even have been around in the 80s and 90s to want to go and track it down um how's that contributed to what you guys are working on now and into the next two years oh hugely uh, um there, there are i think three main things which have completely transformed comics uh in in the modern era uh the first one is um social media which has, as you have identified, allowed people to um, become aware of the history of the, the medium and I guess the heritage. Uh, when people like myself and Glenn and Gary and Tad were starting out, um, 
other than John Ryan's panel by panel book, virtually nobody knew anything about what had happened uh, with the, the golden age um, and silver age of comics in Australia is really hard to define because uh, it didn't really align very much with, with what we had with the, uh, with the Americans. Um, but that connection has created an enormous amount of interest in a way that like maybe even five years ago, nobody really knew or cared that much about these characters. Um, the second thing, I guess, is uh, the, the the Marvel comic, uh, Marvel taking over and becoming a movie production house in its own right. And people then are looking back at so many of the stories that both DC and Marvel are creating and some, almost all of the characters that they're focusing on in, within their, um, their superhero universes grew out of this period, you know, from the mid seventies through to, well, with Marvel, it goes all the way back to obviously Stan Lee and Jack back in the sixties. But I mean, the, I think the last character that I saw created that is now currently being used would be Deadpool. And that was like in the early nineties. And then there's just yeah. nothing new came um, other than doing the occasional gender flip. Or, yeah. or or racial flip of a character, but essentially it's still Iron Man. It's still the Thor. You can make Thor yeah. a female, but it's still Thor. I mean, it's not yeah. like they've done anything new or different, or which I think is a bloody shame actually, because it's lazy. Um, but I guess that's corporatized it, right? So they they're just backing the the licenses and the products they have. Yeah, they, but it's just kind of sad that all that creativity uh, that was happening in the 60s, 70s and 80s and yeah. early 90s. And then and then it's like, okay, now we're just going to cannibalise what exists. And so for mm. for um, well, 30 years now, very little has, has changed. So I think that instinctively got people looking back at that era. And we just happened to be, you know, the high watermark for Australian comics, I think also aligned with the high watermark for uh for america this is when dark horse was created this is when image was created this was when valiant existed Th these were all happening at the same time and we just happened to be lucky enough to be doing it at that time and riding the wave so i, th I think it's only natural that you know the, the modern guys are looking back and saying well you know what was happening then and how can we tap into that and they're trying to build something new and exciting and we did this too back in the you know we tap put Crimson Comet and Molo the Mighty and all of these sort of golden age characters into um, into our comics with with for the most part the permission of the creators um, and so it's, and we did that because we wanted to sort of I guess tap into that heritage which helped legitimise what we were doing but also yeah. almost running with the baton yeah. so I and think also kind of creating an integrated world right you're creating a, a yeah a, a sense that relevant whether whether or not they're still in print. Yeah, and so I think that that's what's happening with the modern era as well. So that, that's the, I guess, the second part. And then, um, the well, there's really four because the third thing is is that the reason why uh, the comics stopped being published in the, uh, so I guess it was the mid '90s, was really just distribution. The distribution um, fell out. I mean, DC and Marvel swan took a swan dive into the pavement because everybody was buying comics not to read but to speculate on and, and like any market the bubble burst and and based on speculation and 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 as a result um for a lot of us uh here in australia the publishing market then moved into magazines like picture and people and so forth which were bringing out like literally a million units a, a week so there was good money working locally and also, you know, uh, the, your work was constantly getting viewed and aired and so forth. And then in, in Glenn's in my case, was also the opportunity to work in film and television, which sort of also uh, moved in that direction. Um, but then uh, by, I would say by 2005, six, seven, something like that, the uh, digital publishing had pretty much destroyed local print because people could uh, bring in really cheap content from overseas. And then over time, um, the distribution uh, of, of books just fell off the cliff because, again, people were starting to uh, buy fewer and fewer magazines. And, and, and I think Oi 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 was the last book that I know of that really tried to maintain that that was sort of 2015, I guess. So, uh, but that tried to, you know, use the old traditional model of publishing and, and distribution. Yeah, that was Nat Carmichael, yeah. 
Yeah, and look, it was a really valiant effort, but it just, um, I frankly was surprised. It must have been bleeding cash because, you know, it was a high-quality book, but I, I know what yeah. the sales numbers would have been based on my own experience, and he must have been struggling. Um, yeah. So, the, but the pri- the reason why we always had to print such huge numbers was because of the way printing existed you needed to go to web press which usually meant between eight to ten thousand minimum units and to do that you had to massively distribute through gordon gotch or ndd or wrap away so um when all of that sort of collapsed um it just was there was no way to get your books out there um that was one of the problems but more importantly you couldn't afford to print up tens of thousands of units but then as digital printing became suddenly you could print two or 300 comics and, you know, through Kickstarter and through these other places, you could probably sell them all and you could probably sell it's them before free, you right? even made them. Yeah. Correct, yeah. Correct. Uh, that, you know, these days you can print, you can create a comic where the only real out-of-pocket expense is your time. Uh, you know, even if you have disastrous sales, you'll still only drop a few hundred dollars. But, you know, when we were doing it, if you had bad sales, you could drop thousands in today's yeah. money. That I knew lots of guys who would print up 10,000 units and maybe sell two of them. Um, and yeah. the cost was maybe three to 4,000 and they needed like a dollar a book back. And they'd drop two or $3,000 in 1980s dollars, which would be like, you know, dropping five, six, seven, eight thousand dollars today. Well, you know, it takes huge discipline to write and draw a comic that you're not getting paid for, and then pay five thousand dollars for the privilege of seeing your work on the newsstands. Yeah. Uh, you know, you don't have to have too many angry yeah. girlfriends. Can you imagine before. the can you imagine the level of anxiety associated with that? Yeah, it was it was tough. So I mean, we were lucky with Cyclone in that we we had enough business acumen to realize that wasn't going to work. And so we very quickly got to the point where the first goal was break even. And then once we got to that, then we're able to sell the books, make a profit. And then you could then really clean up by then exporting them to America. Cause then any profits you made there were effectively jammed because you'd already worn the, yeah. the, the cost of cre- creation, you know, in the first yeah. place. Yeah. So now um, it's possible to create comics, uh, where the only real issue is your time. Um, so this is why we're seeing this. I'm calling it a renaissance because I do believe it is a renaissance. Yeah. Um, of, I, I, of I, think, I think it's the, you know, my, my reason for calling it, even with a panel name, is the fact that you, you've got your target audience, they're engaged, you've got the social media network and footprint to, to keep them updated. And you've got the means to fund it via whether it's Kickstarter or self-funding by pre-orders or something like that. Mm, printing. Mm. So all the risk has been eliminated. All you really need to do is produce those quality books. And, and from what I know that I've discussed with you guys, you've given me some hints of what you're planning for 2022 and beyond. Um, there is going to be a massive return to what, you, what you've always done and done well, right? That That's the plan. I think... Um... What we need to do, though, is be very aware that uh, we are in an echo chamber um, and there is a danger that you can print up. Like, for example, a really successful Kickstarter campaign may literally only result in the creation of three or 400 books. Um, now, that's 400 books going to 400 really you know, keen readers, and that, that's great to know. But then there are, you're getting the multiple covers thing like we saw with Image and Valiant and Marvel back in the 90s. So you start to wonder how many of those books are actually, you know, like multiples. Um, And then I actually believe that to to be sustainable, the comic scene in Australia needs to have at least a thousand readers of Australian content. When we were doing Cyclone, that number was more like between five and eight, depending on the issues that went out there. So um, and, and those were kids who were going to their corner store, you know, out in the, the, the yeah, suburbs yeah. or, you know, and they would buy a comic and you actually saw, you know, like in a country practice, you would actually see, a, you know, a scene where a kid's reading Cyclone comics and, you know, yeah. so there was an ele- a feeling of relevance that I could walk into any comic, sh- any newsstand, because going into a comic shop, you'd expect to see them, but it's when you walk into any news agent in Australia, and you go to the stands and there's Cyclone and there's Fantastique. Well, mm. 
not everywhere because they were banned in half the country. But you'd see Bodine's, you know, Nightside on the Rock, and you'd see Hambart yeah. at the Hippo, and you'd see. So the, That's the benefit sort of, of having that national distribution, I guess, from back in the day was that yeah, you, you reached a new audience with every book. I'm very sure. So the what we lacked in terms of you know the, the downside of the cost was one thing, but on the other hand, you were reaching out there and you were getting it into the community. And there was a, there was a period of about five, six years where you could walk into the newsstand in any Australian newsstand um, and you would find Australian comics in amongst the Phantoms and the DC and yeah. Marvels. Yeah. And it might not necessarily be the same books every time, but um, th- there would at least be half a dozen and they would usually have, like, and you'd see... Uh, like for example, Southern Aurora would have the squadron and and Nightside and that in their, their pages as well. So there was this real sense of a sort of a an Australian universe of superhero characters that would started to come up. I think we're going to see that with um, both Comex and also uh, with Reverie, um, and I think that's sort of really exciting to see. And a lot of the creators are all working with each other. But the the risk is it becomes a circle jerk. We're all kind of doing it for each other. Um, for my mind, the, we need to go beyond our own circle and reach sort of the broader audience. And and how that is achieved, I don't know. It, it could be that we need to branch into film and television. Um, yeah, jump media. Yeah, um, there's a lot of... And, and I, the question is, if you just stopped someone in the street and said, name an Australian superhero they would immediately say Phantom. Uh, and yeah. if you say name an Australian comic book character, it would be a very rare person who says the Southern Squadron. It does happen. I do actually, you know, I'll be chatting to people and I find out they're, they're comic fans and I'd say, oh, I used to do this thing called the Southern Squadron. And I'd go, oh, I used to work. With. So mm. it's not like it's unknown, yeah, but, yeah. It's, yeah, yeah. but it's not mainstream, you know, yeah. where if you talk to people about, but then if you talk to most people, in Australia, and you said, "Did you know that Superman is now gay?" They would go, or bisexual. They would go, well, "What's that?" And they, they, they've, they've, you know, they like so, I wouldn't know or care, you know. Where in the yeah. past, something like that would have actually made it into the mainstream media. Yeah. Now it tends to just be limited to the comic you know, social the, media. The, the woke yeah. press will will champion it, and the and the what are they? The comic gate guys will, you know, <laughs> we'll have a connection, and and, and, yeah. and the rest of the world just quietly gets on with life and you know, yeah. so you know all right um so last one for me like um what what's what's 2022 looking like for you what, what have you guys got planned any hints on books or releases or stories that's going to happen um that people can look forward to yeah um there's going to be some fun stuff i'm working currently on uh two series uh one is uh a southern squadron torn crossover um, I'm doing that with um, Ben Sullivan uh, as the artist and uh, co-written by uh, Rob Lyle, uh, who has one of the, the, the torn writers. Uh, that's uh, looking very exciting and that will be released probably in about two or three months and there'll be a, that's a three-parter. Um, that will then spin ultimately into a regular ongoing um, series for uh, Reverie of the Southern Squadron. Um, that's been written uh, as a series of three-part story arcs, each of which will ultimately become go come out as floppies and then as, as trade paperbacks. And each story arc is sort of part of a continuing story, but the chapters are sort of split by about a month in the chronological time of the characters. And within those months, those month breaks, there will be crossover stories with other characters and other... So, um, uh, Darren Close and I talked about doing um, a Killaroo one that's been on the books for a while. Uh, I'm doing a, one with Bodine. Uh, he's done a Southern Squadron Dark comic, which we'll bring out about this time. Um, and uh, so there's quite a few projects like that. I'm working, uh, hopefully working with Peter Lawson on a um, a Lieutenant Smith and Billabong crossover. Um, Billabong, of course, is from the Torn universe yeah. of characters. And the other big one for this year is a three-part storyline, which is uh, Southern Squadron and the Dark Nebula, which is a retelling of the Dark Nebula origin, sort of the retconning the Southern Squadron in it. And the way we're doing that is that um, the in the Cyclone universe, 
Um, that continued up till around the early 90s. Uh, and interestingly, the Dark Nebulas then, when I stopped doing that because I was doing a lot of American stuff, um, Tad started publishing the Dark Nebula as a standalone title, taking all of the earlier material and packaging it again. And that stuff that he was doing there um, was sort of uh, the when Tad first created the Dark Nebula, it was supposed to occur in the in the near future, which was the early nineties. But when we began Cyclone, that was ten years into the future. But we caught up with them eventually. Yeah. So yeah. this this storyline that we're doing is kind of set in the period where the Southern Squadron sort of finished off with Cyclone, but just before the Dark Nebula began. So it sort of fits right in that middle. So it'll be a bridging storyline. So I'm looking forward to seeing that come out. And this year is the 40th anniversary of the first printing of the Dark Nebula. So that's tying in with that because that was the book that we're retconning is the book that was what started that all off. Um, next year, 2023, um, will be the 40th anniversary of the Southern Squadron. So um, the plan is to bring out some uh, crossover stories um, to bring out uh, to establish the the rebirth of the characters uh, characters as their ongoing series. Uh, and I also want to bring out like a, I guess, a 40th anniversary um, uh it's not even, an, it'll be a sort of half comic, half history of the characters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and some of the some of the stuff that, there was stories that were created sort of between the Oz comics and Cyclone period um, that have never been printed. Uh, and the reason why was because uh, some of them were little two, four-page stories, which were little um, slice of life, character pieces about the characters um yeah. that were uh going to because the uh, that was sort of in the early cyclone days when gary was talking about um having the fourth title being me every third book he suggested that maybe you could do some two or three page storylines for those other ones just to keep mm. the characters sort of you know yeah. fresh yeah, in, yeah. The, in in the in the in the minds of the of the audience so i'd like to sort of bring them out as well Okay. Um, and and they're really interesting because the characters are got you know their original costumes and you know all that sort of early stuff. So yeah, that's a big two years, man. Good luck. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much for the catch up, man. Really, really appreciate it. Um, no, and I'm happy. To. Uh, Absolutely. Any anything I can do, happy to help. Yeah, no problems, man. Really appreciate the catch up. I hope you enjoy. No, it. no, I appreciate what you're doing, and um, uh, the Australian scene really, I think this renaissance is maybe only a year and a half into it. And, and that was the fourth thing we never actually touched on is COVID. COVID, more than anything else, got everybody yeah. back together and got everybody using Kickstarter and reading uh, comics and sort of being part of that. Um, that yeah, because you reconnect uh, the communities, right? You, you yeah, absolutely. I mean, I wouldn't have seen both. I hadn't seen Bodine for 20-odd years. Even Tad, I, you know, only saw him. And, and, because it's we're doing this, you know, you've yeah. got... Yeah. We didn't do Zoom before COVID, you know, yeah. so it's it's a different scene. Um, yeah. So I, th I think it's early days. I think there was a massive enthusiasm over the last year and a bit. I think that it, this is my gut, but I think that maybe towards the end of this year, that's going to die back. Uh, I think people are going to start to become far more um, uh, careful with their money. I think the need to, to promote through comic shops and comic uh, conventions is going to take over again i think kickstarter will have a place but it's not going to be the be all to end all yeah uh, the old Prado effect you know you know one in every 10 will do extremely well and the others will just sort of limp over the line yeah. um but for those who are keen to do it i would say just hang in there and you know yeah. and yeah. but but hang in there for the right reasons yeah. and but I, I think it'll be really interesting to see what the scene looks like in about three to four years time because I think there we will see some really high quality work coming through and um, and a really strong consistent industry. too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Have a great day. Enjoy. Speak soon. Cheers. Take care. And that's a wrap. We'd seriously love your feedback on the episode, uh, your thoughts on collecting, whether it's on Facebook, Instagram, or on the podcast channels. Give us a yell. Tell us what you think. If you liked it enough, subscribe, follow us, and we'll keep pumping them up. As always, we'll leave you with local legends, Torrential Thrill and their song, Mars. Enjoy it.